come to Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this season, um, I've been reflecting on a lot of things lately. Um, my mom's been sick for several weeks, and my grandfather went to the hospital yesterday. And so I've just been thinking about um, life differently in recent weeks. And, and I was thinking today, um, in many ways, it's kind of a reflection of some of those things. And, and so I, I was thinking about growing up and what that looks like. And so one of the things that I, I thought about was the phrase that we've all heard, and maybe as a parent you've said it, uh, do it because I said so. Maybe that's a phrase you use on a regular basis. I mean, I, I remember talking to my dad one time about how um, he would use a line that I, I was like, you realize that doesn't work, right? He'd say, say, well, do as I say, not as I do. And I was like, well, that doesn't work. You get that. I mean, we have this conversation to this day, and he just kind of grins and realizes now that, yeah, that doesn't, none of us are going to do that. <laughs> so, so we've used the phrase because I said so, or we've, we've thought it, or we've heard it, I'm sure for all of us. But but what if we used a better phrase? What if we said, instead of because I said so, what if we said, I know this isn't what you want, but this is what you need. Right? That, that's, that's actually a better phrase. I, I know this isn't what you want. I mean, like for my kids, they, they, can I have candy now? No, you haven't had dinner yet. You cannot have candy. Well, can I, can I have ice cream? No, you cannot have ice cream. You need to eat some food, you know? Can I only eat ice cream? No, because we love you. We don't want you to die. You know, I mean, like, there, there are things that we think that, well, it's because that's what I want. And we, as parents, often know that that's not what our kids need. And so I, I was thinking about that this week. And, and um, so how many times have we gotten what we wanted and realized later, ooh, I wish I'd gotten what I needed? Or how many times have we... Um, been fortunate that we look back and we didn't do what we wanted to do, and we're really glad that that happened that way. And so I started thinking about times when I knew what I should have done, but I did something different. And so I was thinking about when I was um, in middle school, uh, my best friend's name's Pete, and so Pete and I went to see a movie one spring break, and so it was spring break this week, so I remember the story, and and I and, uh, went to the movie, we were in middle school at the time, and so I forgot my house key, and I knew my mom wasn't going to be home when I got home, and so... Um, my, my mom, my, so I, I went to the backyard, and, and I, I tried the door, thinking maybe the garage door would be unlocked. It wasn't, so then I thought, well, there's a window that's always, like, you know, never locked, and so I'll just slide that garage window and climb through, which I've done numerous times, and, and my dad had put a board there. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not going to work. So I'm in the backyard, and I'm going, well, I don't know when my mom's going to get home. This is pre-cell phone, and so I'm thinking, well, I'll just, I'll just play basketball, but then a few minutes later, I was like, I, you know, it's a little chilly outside, and I don't really want to hang out here, so I'm going to, um, I think I can jiggle the back, the garage back door and get it open. And I'd see my dad, like, you know, it, it was kind of loose, and he needed to tighten it, and, and so I thought I could do this, and so I start trying to do that and kind of nudge it, and I'm thinking, if I hit it fast enough and hard enough, maybe it'll come open without having to unlock it. And so I, you know, I'd see movies like The Karate Kid and other kind of things, and so I kicked the door. And wood splintered everywhere. It was awesome. <laughs> but then my second thought was, oh no, my dad. And like a minute or two later, my mom pulls in the driveway and she says, how did you get in the house? Funny you should ask that question. Um, will you come look at something? I think maybe we can fix it before dad gets home. And she goes, what did you do? She goes, did your dad tell you not to try to open that door if you didn't have a key? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he said that. Um, and we can't fix this. We've got to 
frame and fix it. And I was like, oh. So when my dad came home, I just pleaded mercy. And dad, will you please forgive me? Or the time I was in high school and a kid came over to stay the night and I had a, a tennis tournament the next day. And so I really knew I needed to get some sleep, but he didn't need to get sleep. And so he snuck out of my parents' house. And I was vaguely aware that he left. Like I knew it, but I didn't really care because I wasn't doing anything wrong. And my mom heard him leave, and she came to check on us, and she goes, do you know where he is? And I said, um, no. You know, I don't know, maybe he went home to get something. You know, I'm sure he'll be back. Well, he came back at like 5 in the morning, and he left at like 1 in the morning. And so my parents, the next day, it was a long, long trip back from playing tennis that day. It was about a two-hour drive where my dad lectured me the whole two hours. Um, and I just pleaded for forgiveness. Have you ever noticed that so often you have to ask for forgiveness for something you have done? That had you done what you were supposed to do the first time, or had you listened, or had you gone the right direction, you wouldn't be in the same position where you are, but instead you find yourself going, Dad, Mom, Grandma, will you please forgive me? See, there are times that we need to be forgiven, and there are other times where we recognize that what we need isn't what we want. When looking at the story of Jesus, looking at the way he rode into town on this donkey, and he came in, and, and the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us. They want to be saved from Rome. They wanted military might. They wanted Jesus to take up the sword and to, to push Rome out. They wanted the temple courts cleared from, from everything that wasn't what they desired. They wanted Pilate gone. They wanted Herod gone. They wanted this new Messiah, this new Savior to come. And Jesus comes and he weeps. He cries because of what he sees. Because of what they want. Because he cries because that's not who God is. Then he gathers with his disciples at this house and they eat in this upper room. It's what we call the Lord's Supper or, we, or the Last Supper or we, we commonly refer to it as the Eucharist or communion. And so they gather on this table and eat with them as disciples and this, this meal where they celebrate this Passover, this exodus out of Egypt. And then, and then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas slips out from the table. And Peter says, oh, never me, Lord, never me. Jesus says, hey, later tonight, you're going to betray me. Sure enough, he does. Jesus goes to pray, and he prays, God, will you, will you remove this from me? And instead, um, Judas shows up, and Jesus is arrested, and he's taken in. And this is where we pick up the text today. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 66. And, and I'm not going to make you stand, because it's really long, and um, I want to make sure you can get up later. So, um, Luke 22, verse 66, and we're going to read all of this and then all of chapter 23. And so here's what the writer of Luke writes. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated <clears throat> At the right hand of the mighty God, they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he was crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. Put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will say to this mountain, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two of the men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you under the same sentence, we are punished justly. If we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I'll tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. 
But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and saw his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Now that says a lot. Um, this is a ton, actually, and we're going to watch a video in just a little bit that kind of summarizes some of this for us. But, but as we read this story, it kind of a summary is helpful because I, I think in, in many ways what we sometimes miss, the reason Luke gives so much detail and he uses so many names is because he wants us to know that people actually saw this stuff take place. These people saw the death of Jesus and they also saw the resurrection of Jesus and they saw this life that comes in knowing God. So Jesus has been arrested, and, and he doesn't really answer their questions. If you know this, and, and other translations of Luke will say things like this, well, when they say, are you the king of the Jews? He'll say, well, you say that I am. We just say, well, yeah, that's me. He says, you say that I am. Well, he goes before Pilate, the governor, and he says, well, uh, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he goes, you say that I am. See, Pilate's used to dealing with, dealing with dissidents and angry people and the mob and, and people who have tried to lead insurrection of violence, and, and Jesus doesn't fit that model. And Pilate looks at him and he goes, I don't think this guy's done anything wrong. I mean, nothing that we can kill him for. Other than we, I mean, you know, we can kind of beat him and let him go if you want. But I, and then he hears that he's a Galilean. He's like, oh, so I'm going to pass this one off to to Herod. Herod's the, supposed to be overseeing Galilee. I know I'm over this whole area, but, but we kind of let him handle the Galilean area. So he sends him off to Herod, and Herod's pumped for Jesus to come. I mean, Herod's trying to figure out, he's tried to kill him before, but now he's trying to figure out if, if Jesus is, is really kind of like John the Baptist come back. Is this who this guy is? I mean, is that who he is? Or is, is Jesus, is he really, you know, something special? I mean, he's heard about the miracles, and so, so Herod thinks, well, I'm, I'm going to see his miracles. Herod expects to be entertained, and Jesus comes up, and Herod, Herod asks him all kinds of questions, and Jesus doesn't answer. Herod brings in his soldiers, and Jesus doesn't respond. Herod's frustrated, because normally a king would have had plenty of people in his court, and so he's embarrassed. He has him beaten. He puts a robe on him and says, well, here you go, king. He sends him back to Pilate. And I kind of love this part of the story because Pilate and, and Herod have been enemies. I mean, right? They, neither one of them like the Sanhedrin. They don't like the Jewish officials and leaders. I mean, they don't like them at all. Um, so they've kind of, that's their common enemy. But Jesus unites people even when they don't want to be united. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus does. And Herod and Pilate become friends after this. I mean, Jesus, what he does is unite people. That's so what ends up happening is Jesus goes back before Pilate. Pilate says again, I don't think he's done anything wrong. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll release to you Jesus and we'll execute Barabbas. I mean, we all know Barabbas is guilty of murder. You know, he's led violence, revolt against Rome. I, I, we'll, we'll give you Jesus and I'll kill Barabbas. Sound, sound good? They go, no, 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 we, we should execute Jesus. 
See, Pilate had some things in his past. There had been a time when Pilate had redone the, the water aqueducts in Jerusalem, and he stole money from the temple treasury to do it. So he had one strike against the people, because if, if Pilate couldn't control the people and Caesar found out, then Pilate would, would strike out, and it wasn't a good thing to strike out in front of Caesar. And another time, when Pilate came into Jerusalem, they, it was one of the few areas where Rome would not bring their, their standards, their pictures of Caesar, into the, to the holy parts of the city because they knew that the people would prove violence, and so Caesar had given room for them not to do that, but Pilate wanted to prove a point, and so he did it anyway, and so it led to a revolt, and and he had to kill some people to end it, and so he had two strikes against him. And the people knew if there was a third strike and they went to Rome, that Pilate would be the one gone. Pilate knew this as well. See, Pilate found himself in a predicament. He knew that his past could dictate his future if he wasn't careful. And so he let his past dictate the decision he made in the present. And see, this, this is true for so many of us. If we're not careful, our past, we let dictate our present and our future decisions because we've never reconciled those things to God. We've never asked for forgiveness. We've never been willing to do the right thing regardless. And so Barabbas then becomes the one who represents the injustice of humanity. And Jesus, because this is who God is, Jesus takes his place. I love this quote from one scholar. He said this, In the strange justice of God, which overrules the unjust justice of Rome, in every human system, God's mercy reaches out where human mercy could not. Not only sharing, but in this case, substituting for the sinner's fate. The story continues, and the crowd, many of whom days before had been shouting Hosanna, are now the very same ones shouting, Crucify him. Crucify him. I mean, it's kind of us sometimes. We say, God, save us, and then we go back to the same thing we did before, the sinfulness that has defined our lives, the brokenness that's in us. I mean, another thing it reminds us is the mob, the crowd, they're usually wrong. We see this in politics all the time, and some forms of protest. I mean, the mob is usually wrong. I mean, the mob usually doesn't get it right. And Jesus, who's been beaten, begins to carry his cross and can't do it, and so another man takes his cross and, and carries it for him. And as Jesus, as Jesus is going through the city towards Golgotha, the skull, the place where he's going to die, he, he says to the women and others around him, he says, don't you see what they're doing to someone who's done nothing wrong? What do you think is going to happen to your sons? when they lose their cool and they lose their minds, if the Romans are going to crucify the Prince of Peace, what are they going to do to your sons when they turn to violence? And then Jesus is on the cross, and there's two criminals, one on either side, and one looks at him and says, save yourself. Come on, man. You can save other people, but you can't save yourself. What kind of son of God are you? And the one goes, be quiet. He looks at Jesus, and he says, will you remember me? In other words, will you forgive me? Jesus' words to him are, today you'll be with me in paradise. But right before this, he says some other words. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then he says, truly I tell you, today you'll join me in paradise. And his last line was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And a guard responds, Luke records a guard saying, this man surely was righteous. And in other other gospel writers say the guard said this, surely this man was the son 
of God. At the same time, the veil in the temple, this, this place in the temple of Jerusalem that was a center of religious and spiritual life, this veil was torn in the place that was called the Holy of Holies. It was thought to be the place where the very presence of God dwelt. So both symbolically and literally, it's ripped open as a, as a point of God saying to us, I don't know where you got that I was, had to be stored in a box. But through Jesus, God is let loose into the world. And he comes as far to us as he possibly can. Jesus comes all the way to us. The Father comes all the way to us. And then one of the same men from the Sanhedrin, the council who led to Jesus eventually being executed, opens up a graveside, a tomb, and he gives it away. And we'll have to answer the question, what do we do with all this? What do we do with this story? And so I, I, I know like the goal of every sermon is to give you like one point because you won't remember two. I get that, but I have two today, so I'm sorry that there's not just one, there's two. So you have to just remember two instead of one if you even ever remember the one. So, um, one, forgiveness changes everything. Forgiveness changes everything. Number two, Jesus is the Savior we need, not the one we might have picked. Because I think so often we're the same people who shout, crucify him, crucify him. After we said, God save us, but he doesn't do it the way we want him to. So we're going to watch a a quick clip um, that kind of helps us summarize some of this. The next day, the great crowd that had gathered heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel. This crowd praised him. They celebrated his miracles and with great expectation told everyone about him. But they did not know him. They were waiting for someone who would rule with strength and might. But he came as a humble servant. They wanted him to finally bring their people glory. But he wanted to change them so their lives would bring God glory. They were expecting a general who would crush their enemies, but he came saying, love your enemies. They thought he could offer them deliverance from their oppressors, but he came offering deliverance from sin. This crowd would soon realize that Jesus wasn't gonna be what they wanted, and they turned on him before they ever realized he was what they needed. So as they yelled, Crucify! Pilate asked Jesus, Are you a king? Jesus answered, I am not that kind of king. His kingdom isn't what you see here. It won't be established by chaos and war. His kingdom is in our hearts. His kingdom is truth. His kingdom is goodness. His kingdom is righteousness. He is the humble king, the king of healing, the king of forgiveness, the king of love. Today, we lift our voices. We cry, Hosanna, save us. Save us from our sin. Come dwell in our hearts. Hosanna, we worship you. Jesus Christ, our king. 
See, in Jesus, the cross becomes the symbol of all of our sin, of all of our brokenness, of everything that is wrong in our lives, of all the junk that we carry, the burdens that have defined us. It's symbolic of how, no matter how we try to be loving, we, we often fall off short. It models our inability to forgive others. I mean, the cross becomes the place where all this comes. It becomes a symbol for all the woes of life. It's also the same place that Jesus says to us, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How often does Jesus still say that to us? See, the thief next to Jesus represents really how, how God, there's no time in our life, there's no place, there's no, no period of time when we, when we have to wonder, are we so far gone that God can't come to us? Are we so messed up that God can't offer us freedom? Are we so messed up that God can't forgive the sin in our life? Are we so screwed up? Have we done so much that God doesn't come to us? And Jesus reminds us by what he says to this man, there is no place you can go even in this moment right before death. I come to you. See, there's no place we can go. There's nothing we can do that God hasn't carried the burden for us. God goes as far as he can. He goes all the way. There's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation by God. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right. It is the work of God. It is gift. It is grace. It's free. And it provides freedom. More does God have to show his love than what he did through his son. See, there's nothing we can do that God will ever stop loving us. There is no place that we can go that is so far from God that he will not redeem us. Because God's love for you and I is complete. It is the Father who says, I forgive you. And there is nothing you can do that this Father will not forgive. In fact, I want to ask for forgiveness from you today. For any time I have not helped lead you to the place of loving others, I have not pointed you to something better when I have not said this is about following Jesus. If we have not learned to point to love and to him, then that, that's on me, and I apologize. Because the church is to be the place that epitomizes the invitation to selflessness, sacrificial living, in which we worry about the other and we care for them, and we lay our lives down for them. It's about selfless love that is seen in Jesus, and he invites us to live out this kind of way. And we say, well, I don't know about this. Can God really forgive me? Am I, I mean, is it really possible that his forgiveness really does change everything? And so I think about this story. I was reminded of it this week, and I told it once before. Um, a friend of mine was a pastor, and he's now a professor, and pastor of the same church for 23 years, just outside St. Louis. And Tells a story about a young woman coming to his office, his young mom in his church, and, and she said, Pastor, can we talk? And she said, Yeah, yeah, what, what, what can I do for you? She said, Well, Pastor, I'm stuck in a crummy marriage. He said, Okay, well, you know, I, I wanted to know she wasn't stuck. You know, I mean, she chose to marry this man. It was a choice she made. You know, that's part of how the life works. You can marry who you want to marry. No one makes you get married. We don't live in that culture here. And so, so he said, well, um, you're not stuck in this marriage. You chose to marry this man. She goes, well, I had to get married. I was pregnant. And he said, well, you know, you didn't have to get married. Um, you know, you could have tried to raise the baby alone. You could have, you could have tried to, to give the baby up for adoption. You could have, because um, you have someone you're failing to raise the baby. He said, you could have even had an abortion. And he said, I'm not saying you should have done that. He said, she said, no, Pastor, I, I couldn't do that again. 
said, well, she's pastor. Do you think my little girl is in heaven? She said, oh, honey. God's got a special place for your little girl. God's got a special place for your little girl. And he says, well, you knew it was a little girl? She goes, no, I just, I just knew. I, I, I just knew. So how old, how old should she be today? Oh, she, she'd be five. Oh, that's a fun age. What's her name? Emily. Oh, good name. So, Pastor, you're sure, you're sure that my, my little girl's with God? And he goes, oh, with everything that I am, I believe your little girl's with God. He said, see, Pastor, this is why I hate church. I said, what? This is why I hate church. Because it just reminds me that how can I ever go to the place where I killed my own little girl? How, how can I ever go there? He said, oh, honey, that's where you got it wrong. Heaven is the place that God makes all the wrongs of this life right. Heaven is the place where your daughter is the first one to greet you. She says, Mom, I love you. It's okay. See, somewhere she had bought into this idea that God was vengeful, that God got even, that God, God paid back what we have done. We, we get what we deserve. But see, what God wants us to know is through Jesus, we never get what we deserve. And the invitation for you and I today is to recognize that God's forgiveness, what God's forgiveness brings about, it brings heaven on earth. It brings heaven in this moment. It brings the future into the present. It says to us that forgiveness brings heaven here and now. And so the goal of Christianity isn't for us to go to heaven someday. The goal of Christianity is for us to live in such a way that people begin to see heaven here and now all around us by the way that we live and by the way that we love for it to radically define our lives. Because forgiveness really does change everything. See, the crowds wanted a Messiah to come and bring violence and war and run out of people, but instead what they got was God sent a Savior, not that they wanted, but that they needed, who saves us not just from death, but brings us to life. God doesn't give the Messiah we want. He gives us Jesus, who we need. See, we often think of God, I think, like this. We think of him like a, like a genie. If I rub this lamp, if I pray this prayer this particular way, God will give me this and this and this. Like, oh, God, I want a new car. I want a pay raise. None of those things are bad. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we, we treat God as if he is a puppet master pulling strings, but what he says is, I'm someone who loves you. And in my son, you see the fullness of my love, and I come all the way to you. That's why the words in Luke earlier in this book, he says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, because all of us, no matter how good we are, no matter how much our life is together, no matter how great our job or great our family, we are still lacking. We're still lost. But Jesus comes and says, you don't have to be. In fact, this is why I died for you. I came to give you a greater purpose. I came to give you something to live for more. I came so you could be radically transformed so that love was the defining characteristic of your life. I came so that you could know no matter how far you go one way or the other, I still come all the way to you because that's who I am. That's who my Father is. So too often we've painted bad pictures of who God is and we've given people bad stories to follow, but if, 
if we've done nothing today, I hope you hear this. God loves you right where you are. There's nothing you and I can do to change that. And in Jesus, he says, "Ah, come as you are. Not how I'll make you, not what I'll redeem you, but come right now as you are. This morning, the praise team is going to come, and they're going to sing the song, Come As You Are, one more time. As I come this morning, I want to give a challenge today. If you've said to Jesus before, I want to know you. I want to know this love that you say is really life-giving, that you would give your life up for me so that I could know God in a relationship that sets my life right. Then I want to say this morning, if you believe that, and if that defines you, and you've never been baptized, see me before you leave today, and let's baptize you next Sunday. But maybe today you find yourself going, you know, is this real? Does God really love me? I mean, does he know what I have done? Does he know who I have been? Or or maybe you're going, I don't even think I'm that bad. I don't think anything's wrong in my life. I don't think I've done anything wrong. I I just think I'm okay. And and I want to say to you, then, then do you know love in its fullest? Because I'll tell you this, no matter how much I try to love people, no matter how much I try to love people, God reminds me often, are you loving them enough? Because I can tell you this, without the work of God in my life, my love is never real. It's never full. It's never complete. But what if today, what if today you accepted that God really does love you? What if today you accepted that Jesus really did die for you? What if you accept today that in the fullness of God's love, Jesus comes and says, Father, forgive them because I don't know what they're doing, but I'm going to make a way and I'm going to redeem everything. It's why next Sunday we're talking all about how God gives second chances and third, and fourth, and fifth, and for many of us, a lot more than that. But God comes to us and says, come as you are. So this morning, as we, as we pray, and as we sing, maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, and so I just want to give opportunity for that today. So if you want to come pray this morning, I, I, would, I would challenge you that if you really want to say to Jesus, yes, I want you, then you have to take a step of faith. So this morning, I invite you to come to my left, your right. If you want to be left alone, you just want to pray. If you come to my right, your left, someone will come and pray with you. Because God's forgiveness really does change everything, and Jesus is for us the Savior we need, whether we would have picked him or not. We stand as we pray and as we sing this morning. Father, we thank you today for the way you are faithful to us for the way you come to us and you say you are mine. That there's nothing in life we can do that we find ourselves taken away from you, but you come. And so this morning, maybe if we have never said yes to you the first time, or maybe today we know there's something in us that we just seem to repent of and lay before you and say, I know that the cross changes everything. That on the cross, you take our sin and our brokenness and our broken relationships and our inability to love well. You take our pride, our jealousy, And you say, I'll take them from you. I will come all the way to you. Because I want you to be right. This morning, as I pray, Father, I pray that if, if one of us here would, would want to make a decision for you, we would find the courage to step out in faith. To receive the gift that is your son's love for us, that changes everything, that brings the future into the present, that brings God's heaven to here on earth now. So, Father, help us to recognize you and invite us always to come as we are. 
May we embrace that. May we model that. And may we live out a life that reflects your love for us. We'll pray all of these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to come if you'd like to come and pray at this time.